0: Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do.
1: Object! And when it went bad, you concerned. cut these guys loose! Your Honor, you're just inside a transfer. Your Honor! You doctored the logbook! Damn, I can't the you Consider yourself in no. contempt! <laughs> Colonel
2: Jessup, Did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer
1: the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled to- You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth!
3: school. Take five with Paul Desmond on alto sax, Joe Morello on drums, Mr. Eugene Wright on bass, and of course, Dave Brubeck on piano. Why take five, you ask? Well, this is the fifth episode, but more to the point. It's all about the Fifth Amendment and how it has affected policing, the judicial process, the UCMJ, and American television. But before we get to all of that, let's take a look back at the origins of these rights that are captured in the Fifth Amendment of the American Constitution. On March 5th, 1770, Private Hugh White, a British soldier guarded a safe of British gold on King Street in Boston, Massachusetts. Tensions in Boston were already running high as the newly imposed Stamp Act and Townsend Act exacerbated relations between the British Royal Government and the colonists. As Private Wright grew increasingly nervous from a growing crowd of angry Bostonians, he called for reinforcements. More British soldiers arrived, and the crowd of colonists began to throw rocks and snowballs at the royal soldiers. Nobody knows for certain who fired the first shot, but the outcome was tragic. A deadly riot that resulted in the death of five colonists, wounding six more. The events of March 5th, 1770, are commonly known as the Boston Massacre. Events that night played a pivotal role in fueling anti-British sentiment throughout the 13 colonies. Within hours, Private White and seven of his comrades were arrested and jailed. But do you know the full story? Do you know what happened next? The actions of a 34-year-old lawyer named John Adams forever shaped and influenced American jurisprudence and our rights as citizens in the eyes of the law. The details of this story come from authors Dan Abrams and David Fisher in their book John Adams Under Fire, the Founding Fathers' Fight for Justice in the Boston Massacre Murder Trial. After Private White and his comrades were jailed, John Adams made a courageous decision to defend the British soldiers in trial. The British soldiers were being tried for first degree murder and faced the death penalty. Adams' actions in trial showed that reasonable doubt existed. Both the soldiers and eyewitnesses stated the soldiers acted in self-defense and amidst the confusion, it was impossible to premeditate the killings. All of the soldiers were acquitted of the original charges. Adams' actions, An unpopular choice to defend British soldiers established the precedent of due process in American law that shapes our legal system today. Every person would be guaranteed the right to counsel, a fair trial by jury, and the right to defend themselves in a court of law. John Adams took the moral high road and as a result paved the way for the introduction of the due process clause and the observation of all criminal rights enshrined in the Bill of Rights.
2: No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime, unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces, or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life liberty or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Fifth Amendment.
3: Welcome and thanks for joining us on the fifth episode of the Stockdale Center's Bill of Rights series. I'm your host and narrator, Michael Sears. Today's episode is titled Criminal Self-Incrimination. We continue right where we left off on episode four, Search, Seizure and Admissibility. Once under the suspicion of an offense, what are your rights and how do they play out? We will begin by detailing the process of being taken into police custody, assuming the processes detailed in the last episode were conducted lawfully and reasonably. What happens to you, either as a citizen or as a military member, once the police have arrested you? Everyone has heard of the Miranda rights. Do you know where they come from? We will also break down Miranda's military equivalent under the UCMJ, otherwise known as your 31 Bravo rights. Let's step back for a second to be clear with our direction. Episodes 4, 5, and 6 describe the process of the law in a linear fashion, all the way from suspicion of criminal activity to the process of an arrest to the rights guaranteed on the court. We along with our distinguished panels of guests, take you from A to Z and detail how each of these steps within criminal procedures stem directly from Amendments four through eight of the Bill of Rights. Episode four focused solely on the Fourth Amendment. Today in episode five, we introduce Miranda Rights, the Fifth Amendment, the Due Process Clause. Next time in episode six, we detail exactly what happens once seated in a courtroom. Let's get started. We know for certain that when Private White and his fellow soldiers were arrested, taken into custody and ultimately jailed, they were afforded minimal rights. Only John Adams' actions at trial were able to acquit them. Today however, thanks to the likes of TV shows like CSI and NCIS, virtually everyone has heard the Miranda rights. But what really are Miranda rights? Where do they come from? and what happens when an individual is taken into police custody.
2: This is Mitt Regan. I'm a professor at Georgetown Law Center. I also am a senior fellow at the Sockdale Center uh, for Ethical Leadership at the U.S. Naval Academy. Well, the right to remain silent um, is concern in particular with the right against being required to incriminate yourself. And this goes back to practices, not only in England, but in in many other countries, of obtaining confessions through coercion, including torture, for instance. Now, you know, one concern about that is you just may not get accurate information. But another is that that's a fund of torture or coercion. And being forced to incriminate yourself is just a fundamental violation of your dignity, you know, as a human being, that the state should be required to assemble evidence without being tempted to try to get you to confess, whether it's coercing you, whether it's tricking you or what have you, right? Right that if there's enough evidence out there, the state <clears throat> should be required to assemble it. And so the right to remain silent reflects the fact that people who are not familiar with the legal system and you know, many of us are, are not familiar with all its intricacies may be vulnerable when questioned by the police and may say some things that, that they don't realize or they're not clear, but that could be used to incriminate them, right? And so the right to remain silent is meant to sort of protect against that sort of risk that you might uh, incriminate yourself. Now, that right isn't very valuable unless you know you have it, right? And so in 1963, you know, there was someone, Ernesto Miranda, was arrested by Phoenix police, you know, based on a tip. And after several hours of interrogation, he signed a confession that. He said, was given voluntarily without any threats, without any coercion. But officers had not informed him of his right to remain silent and his right not to incriminate himself and his right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment. And he also wasn't told that any statements that he made to the police could be used against him in court. And so there was an objection to the admissibility of his confession. On the grounds he hadn't been advised of those rights, and the court held that, uh, in fact, uh, the confession was inadmissible because of those violations, and this led to you know what is known as the Miranda warning, right? you know the staple of many many shows on television, uh, and uh, what it says is essentially you've got the right to remain silent, anything you say. Canon will be used against you in court. You have the right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be provided for you. If you decide to answer questions now without a lawyer, you can stop at any time. And there literally are cards, basically, that police officers read when they give someone their Miranda warning. And so the trigger for the warning is either bringing someone into custody and interrogating them, or just beginning to interrogate them for the purpose of possibly gaining information that might be used uh, against them. So you don't have to formally arrest someone if you're engaged in an interrogation that uh, could lead to some kind
3: of incriminating response. How did Ernesto Miranda's case play out, and what long-term impact did that have on the law?
2: Well, he was uh, he was retried and eventually was convicted uh, on the basis of independent evidence. So the interesting thing about Miranda, then, you know, ultimately the uh, conviction based on his confession was overturned because that confession was deemed to be inadmissible. And so you wonder, well, well, now what the police? What are the police going to do? Well, it turns out that Miranda was later convicted because the prosecution was able to gather other evidence independent of his statements that were sufficient to convict him. And so this illustrates, again, the way in which what the right to remain silent and the Miranda warning does is simply require that the government not attempt to use the individual to prove its case, the the suspect, but to gather evidence independently.
3: Professor Paul Nevin continues.
0: So the Fifth Amendment says uh, no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, which essentially means that if you uh, you can sort of plead the fifth, if someone is asking you uh, a question that could incriminate yourself and uh, the Miranda really sort of breathe life in this constitutional provision, In 1966, the Miranda refers to a a Supreme Court opinion from from 1966 when a citizen named Ernesto Miranda was convicted in Arizona State Court for really horrible crimes, kidnapping, rape, other sort of terrible crimes. And they convicted him largely based upon the confession that he gave to the police after being arrested and interrogated by Arizona law enforcement. He was in what's called uh, custodial police interrogation. He was not affirmatively reminded of his right to an attorney. He was not affirmatively reminded of his right against uh, self, uh, right to not self-incriminate. Um, and so he challenged us all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and as your listeners may or may not know, if you confess to a crime to a law enforcement official, that is considered highly probative and will likely be used against you in a court of law. So if you confess to something on a piece of paper that you committed a crime, then it it could be curtains (laughs) for you for going to to prison for a a long time. So he challenged the confession, saying that his confession was really involuntary and in violation of the Fifth Amendment. The Supreme Court, in a surprising opinion to many, actually agreed in an opinion by Chief Justice Warren, uh, acknowledged if you're in a custodial interrogation, there's psychological pressure, there's coercion that could exist. And he placed an affirmative obligation on the government, on law enforcement, to re-suspect suspects is now known as Miranda rights, stating they have a right to have counsel present and reminded of your Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So Miranda's case was remanded back to the lower court and do over again with not no longer having his confessional Uh, his confession as part of the evidence, Um, he actually was convicted (laughs) without the confession and still convicted of his crimes, Miranda was. uh, But they went through the process and Miranda will be forever uh, associated with that case.
3: On June 13th, 1966, in the case of Miranda versus Arizona, the U.S. Supreme Court officially established the principle of Miranda rights. Thanks to Professor Regan and Professor Nevitt, we know Ernesto Miranda was ultimately found guilty of evidence independent from his coerced confession. Nevertheless, Miranda rights were firmly established into the American legal system and that all criminal suspects must be made aware of their rights before questioning or interrogation. These rights formally read, You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be appointed to you. It is important to note that Miranda rights are not a part of the Bill of Rights whether they serve as an immediate stepping stone to an accused individual in police custody. More specifically, they detail rights guaranteed in the fifth and sixth amendment and ensure that all accused individuals are aware of these rights. Now let's shift our focus to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. We briefly mentioned 31 Bravo as analogous to Miranda rights for military members. Professor Nevitt, how are we to understand the differences between Miranda and 31 Bravo? And where does 31 Bravo come from?
0: 31B rights actually predate the Miranda rights. They're from 1951. 31B refers to the article in the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And um, it's just uniquely uh, a military right. Um, Congress after World War II was concerned... That the military would have a conditioned response to authority and and junior service members would be compelled to speak against themselves um, and become witnesses against themselves if they didn't have these 31B rights in place. And so this is required um, at all times when a, when a person is being questioned as a suspect of, of a crime being convicted and any sort of military member in the chain of command or who has some, some sort of authority has a affirmative duty to, to issue these 31B rights. The 31B rights add and omit certain Miranda rights. It actually specifies what you are accused of. There's no discussion of you know, right to an attorney in 31B rights. All of which, which is to say, this is somewhat confusing how 31B rights sort of merge with Miranda rights. The good news is that any sort of requirement to issue Miranda rights or 31B rights, there's one form that is ensign proof and second lieutenant proof that combines all the warnings into one document. And so if you are questioning someone that you believe may have committed a crime, it's always a good idea to have that person be aware of his or her rights, get the form out from the JAG instruction and have him sign.
3: We turn to Lieutenant Commander Jarzik and Colonel Shaw for more details.
4: Hi, I'm Liz Jarzik. I'm a JAG. I've been in the Navy for almost a decade and I have the pleasure of teaching here in Loose Hall. I teach NL 400 law for the junior officer. So Miranda versus 31B are both expressions of the Fifth Amendment, which is designed to make sure that the man cannot make us rat ourselves out, right? It's the protection against self-incrimination. Important to note, I think, is the fact that 31B actually came to be 15 years before Miranda, was decided. So the military, a decade and a half before my home state of Arizona, uh, you know, screwed some stuff up and we figured out Miranda, said, you know what? Actually, let's warn some folks before we start interrogating them and asking them questions. Some key differences between them are in the rights themselves that you're going to be warned about and in the timing. So as to the rights advisements themselves... Both Miranda and 31B require the government to tell you that you have the right to remain silent and that anything you say could be used against you in a court of law. Miranda also imposed the requirement that you be told, hey, you've got a right to an attorney, and if you can't afford one, one will be provided to you. 31B did not have that in its statute. I don't think that there's any particular reason why. I just think that the drafters weren't thinking about it um, at the time. And at the time, the JAG Corps was not the robust institution that it is now. And so we didn't really have access to as many military lawyers. Um, 31B requires something that Miranda does not that's also super important. And that is an advisement as to what it is I think you did wrong before I'm going to ask you a question. The civilian cops don't have to tell you that. So you may think that you're just going down there to give like a garden variety interview, but actually they think that you have uh, committed XYZ crime and they're trying to dig up dirt on you. That kind of law enforcement tac- tactic is not available in the military because I have to tell you, hey, I think that you're guilty of distribution of drugs or whatever before I ask you questions. So I also mentioned that they are different in terms of timing, and this is critical as well. Under Miranda, the police don't have to give you a rights advisement until you're, quote, in custody, which basically means you're not free to leave. So if they are conducting a garden variety interview of you, even if they're kind of hip to your nonsense, right? They think you did something shady, but they don't have quite enough to arrest you yet, or they have not placed you under arrest. You don't have to be told of your rights not so under 31b. Under 31b, it's any questioning for a law enforcement or disciplinary purpose. So if I think Timmy did wrong and I'm in his chain of command and I, you know, ultimately would use this to give him NJP or some other kind of disciplinary action, I got to tell Timmy his rights advisement. So a common example I use in my class of how this plays out is the Friday Night Dateline special. Wife is found dead Obviously, everyone's first suspect is the husband, right? So the civilian police request Joe Husband come down for an interview. And even though they think he did it, right, they do not likely have to warn him about anything. They can just say, hey, come on down. We really want to find who killed your wife's killer. We need some background info, whatever. And the whole time they're going to use that as as mining to get information on you without having read you your rights. Military police, if we suspect you, We've got to warn you. So if I call Joe husband, uh, lieutenant husband, right down to NCIS, I have to say, hey, lieutenant husband, I think you murdered your wife. You have the right not to talk to me. Do you still want to talk to me? It's actually far more protective in the military. It's what I'm getting at. And something, one final thing worth noting is when your employer at Google thinks that you did something wrong, they don't have to warn you of your rights, right? They just barge in your office and say, hey, uh, are you stealing from the company? Not so in the military, right? If you, lieutenant or ensign Schmuckatelli, think that Seaman Timmy has done something wrong, you have to warn him of his thirty-one B advisement, which means that we have non-lawyers, non-police officers required to give rights advisements to folks in our system. And your friendly local neighborhood JAG is your is your person to go to on that.
1: Carl Chris Shaw. So certainly, uh, the the difference between the Miranda rights and the thirty-one Bravo rights. Um, we'll break down as follows, but I think before that, we just need to talk about the history of Miranda and the history of 31 Bravo rights. So Article 31 Bravo rights were given to military members actually 15 years before Miranda rights were given to civilians. And really the idea was, was that under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, in the military, commanders have a lot of authority and the commanders could actually coerce people into admitting things that they actually didn't do. So in the late 50s, 60s, they uh, created 31 Bravo Rights. The 31 Bravo Rights, they basically talk about who must give the warning, who must be warned, and when the warning must be given. Uh, So for 31 Bravo Rights, Anyone that is subject to the code, so any military person that is asking questions, must give the uh, 31 bravo rights. Additionally, folks that are working on behalf of the military, like NCIS or CID, must give the 31 bravo rights. Who must be warned? A person that is accused of violating the Uniform Code of Military Justice or a suspect? of an investigation. The 31 Bravo rights must be given whenever there's questioning or an interrogation. The content of the warning is that they have to give a nature, the nature of the offense. They must tell uh, the accused or the suspect that they can remain silent, and they also must tell them the consequences of not remaining silent. The differences between the 31 bravo rights and Miranda rights are, are, are this. When we go to who must give the warning for Miranda, only law enforcement has to give the warning. So if you can imagine if you are working for Google and your supervisor asks you a question about um, something that was stolen, that supervisor, because they're they're not a police, they're not law enforcement. They're not working for the government. They don't have to give you a warning. That's different than in the military where your supervisor, even though he's not law enforcement, if he's asking you about stolen property or he's asking you about something that is a violation of the law, your supervisor must give a warning. Uh, Who must be warned? Under 31 Bravo, the accused and a suspect. Whether they are being interrogated or not, they must be given the warning. Under Miranda, only persons that are in custody, they're arrested or they're being held by law enforcement, have to be given the warning. When, do the, when does the, uh, the warnings have to be given? Again, on the military system, when any questions are happening, when any interrogations are happening, under the civilian Miranda, only under custodial interrogation. And then finally, the contents of the warning. Miranda rights actually provide a warning that basically talks about your right to counsel, where 31 Bravo rights does not talk about your rights uh, of counsel. So those are the the basic uh, differences between Miranda and 31 Bravo rights.
3: It is important to reiterate that both Miranda rights and 31 Bravo are not components of the Bill of Rights, but rather exist to ensure an accused individual knows his or her rights that already exist because of the Fifth and Sixth Amendments. We now turn more deeply into the Fifth Amendment itself. Professor Regan, what is the purpose of the Fifth Amendment?
2: Well, the Fifth Amendment, I would say in many respects, is the fundamental principle of any country that purports to be governed by the rule of law. And why do I say that? Well, it says that, you know, your life, your liberty, your property are your own, and the government can't deprive you of them unless it can establish through proper legal process that you've done something to justify you being deprived of them. And that is a very basic principle of the rule of law. It was meant to prevent the abuse of power. Again, the colonists looked to the crown. Going back in English history a bit, there was something known as the star Chamber for instance that um, started out to be sort of a court of equity that tried to do justice when maybe law wouldn't achieve that but was then commandeered by monarchs to punish those they perceived as their enemies you know to seize their property to throw them into the tower to execute them all in secret without any kind of legal process uh, in any meaningful kind of way. And so the colonists felt that the idea of due process was, was fundamental. And to be fair, English law had evolved since the Star Chamber and had begun to provide more and more legal process. And the colonists, in many respects, Felt that what they were doing when they revolted was simply trying to assert their rights as English subjects, uh, that they were being deprived of rights to which they were entitled. And so the Due Process Clause is really, I think, uh, the core of that sort of view that there must be meaningful constraints uh, against
3: the abuse of power. Can you provide more depth on the Due Process Clause and what that really means?
2: Well, due process is, at its core, the principle that you can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without a process in which the government establishes that it's justified in depriving you of those because of some law in essence, that you have violated or some action you have taken. And what due process does is determine whether under the circumstances and your particular facts, there is in fact a legal basis for some kind of deprivation of life, liberty, or property. Obviously, life you know that's a capital case, right? But property could be even a fine. You know, uh, you could have a you, you get a you get a traffic ticket. You know, or you you know you litter, or uh, you, you or you could lose your let's say your public benefits. You maybe maybe you're getting welfare benefits, right? Um, so that's the basic concept. Now, what the court has said is that very general concept. Can be uh, effectuated in a variety of different ways. I mentioned, let's say, um, a capital case where if you're convicted, you could be subject to the death sentence. Okay, now due process means, you know, the full arsenal of the various kinds of procedural protections that are required in a criminal trial. But, you know, there could be, let's say, uh, some concern about your you know veterans benefits or some other kind of uh, assistance that you're getting right what a court has said is that you don't have to have the full trappings of a, of a criminal trial and all its protections every time you know you're at risk of let's say paying a fine that what is required by due process is flexible it depends on the circumstances right? in the court, uh, announced this in the case of Matthews versus Eldridge, and the court said that there are a variety of things to take into account in determining whether the process you got satisfies due process. So, depends on how significant is the interest that you that you may be in jeopardy of losing. How important is the government interest? You know, on the other side. What is the burden to the government of the various kinds of processes that it might put in place? What are your opportunities to uh, appeal the judgment? And so that can depend on, on different circumstances. You know, even though the court has said <clears throat> that what due process requires depends on the circumstances, that is, depending on what it is you might lose, depending on the government's uh interest. There are some things I think that are sort of seen as the core due process. One is that you have an unbiased decision maker. Another is that you have notice of what the government wants to do. And you have an opportunity to present reasons why you believe that the government's not justified and to present evidence. And those are just the basic opportunity to be heard, right? To be informed of um, the potential loss that you might suffer the reasons for it and to respond and that i would say is the core due process those are the essential elements and then you know how that's effectuated in a given case will depend upon the uh, the interested state
3: the importance of the due process clause cannot be understated if you recall from the beginning of this episode the fifth amendment ensures five key rights the right to a grand jury the right against double jeopardy, the right to just compensation, and as we've detailed greatly, the right against self-incrimination. But that fifth right, due process ensures that all the others are protected. That is, without question, the defining element of the Fifth Amendment. The precedent John Adams established in defending Private Hugh White and his fellow soldiers defines American jurisprudence against all the odds and public backlash, John Adams ensured their due process and subsequently created a standard that continues today. All of the rights enshrined within criminal procedure, the reading of Miranda, the right to counsel, the right to a jury, and the right against self-incrimination exist because of our adherence to due process. In our next episode, we conclude the linear pattern of criminal procedure, focusing on an individual's criminal rights under the remaining clauses of the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th Amendments. We specifically detail what happens once you've been read your rights in police custody and are sitting in a court of law. Until next time. listening to the bill of rights podcast from the stockdale center at the united states naval academy this is a series of presentations that covers the interconnections between the u.s constitution the bill of rights and how the uniform code of military justice relates to each other tune in for the rest of the series covering freedoms criminal procedure courts trials and enumerated rights among other things you raised your hand in an oath to the Constitution the first day you got here. Make sure you know what it means. These podcasts are brought to you by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. I'm Michael Sears, the Director of Leadership Innovation, and I'm with my partner, Ensign Aiden Riley. We wrote, edited, and produced this series. Would also like to thank our guests, Professor Mark Nevitt, Professor Jeff McCrease, Professor Mary DeCritico, Professor Brielle Harbin, Professor David Luban, Professor Mitt Regan, Professor Jeff Kossif, Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik, and Colonel Christopher Shaw, United States Marine Corps. Music by Take Five, the Dave Brubeck Quartet, written by Paul Desmond. The NCIS theme from the TV show NCIS. And Beverly Hills Cop by Harold Faltemeyer, From the movie, Beverly Hills Cop. Words by James Madison and the 55 founding fathers who started this conversation. And we are happy they did.